Welcome to Biology Lessons on Air. My name is Veronica Thanasiu, and today I will be talking about thermoregulation and osmoregulation. This is for the students who do IGCSE in biology, and I'm going to be talking about pages from the book by Phil Bradfield and Steve Potter. Osmoregulation is the maintenance of the water and salt content of the internal environment. The internal environment is the surroundings of the cells and includes the blood and the tissue fluid. Osmoregulation is an important component of homeostasis, which is the maintenance of a constant internal environment. All living organisms must maintain a constant internal environment. And when we say internal environment, we're talking about pH, temperature, osmotic pressure, and other conditions that must prevail for the enzymes to work properly so that all the metabolic reactions can take place. The kidneys and the skin are organs that play a major role in excretion, thermoregulation, and osmoregulation. Remember that tissue fluid is a watery solution of salts, glucose, and other solutes that surrounds all the cells of the body forming a pathway for the transfer of nutrients between the blood and the cells. It is formed by leakage from blood capillaries. Tissue fluid is similar in composition to blood plasma, but lacks the proteins. Apart from salts, other components of the internal environment are regulated to constant levels, Apart from the ones we mentioned before, pH and temperature, also carbon dioxide and dissolved glucose. Homeostasis in general is important because cells will only function properly if they are bathed in the tissue fluid with the optimum conditions. Concentration of solutes, pH, temperature and no buildup of toxic substances like urea. Urea is one example of an excretory product made in our bodies. Other excretory products are carbon dioxide from cell respiration that is removed from the body through the lungs during gas exchange. Urea is a nitrogenous substance that is produced in the liver and is removed by the kidneys when it concentrates it and forms urine. The skin also excretes small amounts of urea and in plants they excrete carbon dioxide and oxygen through pores in their leaves called stomata. Oxygen is an excretory product from photosynthesis so what they don't need it's very precious for us humans. Now, coming back to the kidney, uh, it's both a homeostatic organ that we will focus on in this episode because it controls the water and salt concentration in the body. And when we say, say salt concentration, we're talking about ionic concentration, different ions like sodium and chloride, but others as well. It is also an excretory organ when it concentrates urea in the urine, so it can be eliminated from the body. And that will be material in another episode. In the kidney, there are millions of tubules that make urine and they are called nephrons. 
the last section of the nephron is called the collecting duct. And the permeability of the collecting duct is affected by a hormone called antidiuretic hormone. Now, diuresis means the flow of urine from the body. So antidiuresis means producing less urine. Antidiuretic hormone or ADH starts to work when your body loses too much water. For example, if you are sweating heavily and not replacing lost water by drinking. The loss of water means that the concentration of the blood starts to increase. This is detected by receptor cells in a region of the brain called the hypothalamus. It is situated above the pituitary gland. These cells are sensitive to the solute concentration of the blood and cause the pituitary gland to release more ADH. The ADH travels in the bloodstream from the brain to the kidney. At the kidney tubules or nephrons, it causes the collecting ducts to become more permeable to water so that more water is reabsorbed back into the blood. This makes the urine more concentrated so that the body loses less water and the blood becomes more dilute. So all of this happens when we don't drink enough water. The ADH makes the collecting duct more permeable to water. This means that water that would otherwise move out of the kidney into the bladder and outside of the body will be reabsorbed back into the blood. That means it will go from the nephron back into the blood capillaries that surround the nephron because the permeability of the collecting duct that consists of cell membranes which have some proteins that will open up and allow water to get out of this filtrate that is almost urine and go back into the blood capillaries passing through the tissue fluid that is surrounding all of these structures. So antidiuretic hormone makes the urine more concentrated, meaning that there will be less volume and it will be darker in color and smellier. If we analyze the ADH as a hormone, think what is the source of antidiuretic hormone? What is the endocrine gland that produces antidiuretic hormone? The pituitary gland. What is the target organ affected by ADH? The collecting ducts are affected because they are made permeable to water in the presence of ADH and they are found in the nephron of the kidneys. So the target organ are the collecting ducts in the nephrons of the kidneys. The organ is the kidney and the specific pore section of it is a collecting duct in the nephron. And what is the sensory organ 
that determines or switches on the production of ADH by the pituitary gland. The receptor cells are found in the region of the brain called the hypothalamus. So when will this stop? Well, the action of ADH illustrates the principle of negative feedback. This change in conditions in the body is detected and starts a process that works to return conditions to normal. When the conditions are returned to normal, the corrective process is switched off. In figure 8.7 in your book, page 111, you have this mechanism of negative feedback. Now, internal environment normal in this case means the right concentration of the blood, meaning the right water to solute balance. So when the blood becomes too concentrated, then there's, this is a change that is detected by the hypothalamus and it will make the pituitary gland produce ADH. It will make the kidneys more permeable to water. The blood will become more dilute and this will be detected again by the hypothalamus. And when the hypothalamus detects that the concentration of the blood went back to normal, then it will let the pituitary gland know that it can stop producing uh, ADH. If we have a situation where the person drinks too much water, the blood is going to become too dilute. This will lead to lower levels of ADH secretion because the hypothalamus will detect that there is a high concentration of water in the blood. Then no ADH production means that the kidney tubules, the collecting ducts in the nephron, become less permeable to water. That means that the water that is in the filtrate will remain as part of the urine. So more urine will go to the bladder. This means there will be a larger volume of urine and it will be less concentrated. So this is what happens when you are drinking a lot of water. You notice that you go to the toilet more often because the bladder fills up quicker and the urine is not as smelly and not as dark as it is when you're not drinking enough water. In this way, through the action of ADH, the level of water in the internal environment is kept constant. Thermoregulation is another important process that has to do with homeostasis. It, it is the control of body temperature. And it is what homeothermic animals like birds and mammals can do to keep their body temperature constant, regardless of changes in temperature of their surroundings. In the reptiles like lizards is different. They are called cold blooded because if they are kept in an aquarium at 20 degrees Celsius, their body temperature will be 20 degrees Celsius. If the temperature of the aquarium is raised or lowered, then their body temperature will rise or drop as well. 
But the real difference between homeotherms and all other animals is that homeotherms can keep their temperatures constant by using physiological changes for generating or losing heat. For this reason, mammals and birds are called endotherms, meaning heat from inside. An endotherm uses heat from the chemical reactions in its cells to warm its body. It then controls its heat loss by regulating processes like sweating and blood flow through the skin. Endotherms use behavioral ways to control their temperature too. For example, penguins huddle together in groups to keep warm, and humans put on extra clothes in winter. What is the advantage of a human maintaining a body temperature of 37 degrees Celsius? It means that all the chemical reactions taking place in the cells of the body can go on a steady, predictable rate. It is also important that the body does not become too hot. The cell's enzymes work best at 37 degrees. At higher temperature, enzymes, like all proteins, are destroyed by denaturing. They lose their shape. Endotherms have all evolved a body temperature of around 40 degrees Celsius, and enzymes that work best at these temperatures. In humans and other mammals, the core body temperature is monitored by a part of the brain called the thermoregulatory, thermoregulatory center. This is located in the hypothalamus. It acts as the body's thermostat. If a person goes into a warm or cold environment, the first thing that happens is that temperature receptors in the skin send electrical impulses to the hypothalamus, which stimulates the brain to alter our behavior. We start to feel hot or cold and usually do something about it, such as finding shade if it's too hot or having a cold drink or if it's too cold, we put on more clothes. If changes to our behavior are not enough to keep our body temperature constant, the thermoregulatory center in the hypothalamus detects a change in the temperature of the blood that is flowing through it. It then sends signals via, via nerves to other organs of the body, which regulate the temperature by physiological means. Now, before we go into the changes that happen in the skin, it is important to point out, point out that there are other ways that the body can control heat loss and heat gain. In cold conditions, the body's metabolism speeds up, generating more heat. That means more chemical reactions that are exothermic, they produce more heat. The liver, which is a large organ, can produce a lot of metabolic heat in this way. So, for example, there will be a lot of glycogen being broken down to glucose, more respiration taking place, and heat produced. So the liver creates heat, and this heat goes around the body in the blood plasma. The hormone adrenaline also stimulates the increase in metabolism. Shivering also takes place, where the muscles contract and relax rapidly. This also generates a large amount of heat. 
Now, sweating, vasodilation and vasoconstriction, hair erection, shivering, and changes in the metabolism, along with behavioral actions, work together to keep the body temperature to within a few tenths of a degree of the normal 37 degrees. If the difference is any bigger than this, it shows that something is wrong. For instance, a temperature of 39 degrees Celsius might be due to an illness. On page 113 of the book, you have a, a diagram that shows the structure of the skin. Now, the skin is made up of two layers, the dermis and the epidermis. Below the dermis, there is a hypodermis where there are cells filled up with fatty tissue. We've studied that fats are good insulators. So this layer prevents heat from the deeper layers of our body being lost. Now, if you look at the structures found in the dermis, you can see a pore, you can see a hair in the follicle, you can see a hair erector muscle, an oil gland, and a sweat gland. They are different. The oil gland it produces sebum, which maintains our skin supple, and the sweat gland is going to produce sweat, which is basically plasma from the blood that escapes and it contains heat and when it evaporates from the skin it removes heat from our body and it literally cools us down. There are also pain receptors and pressure receptors and temperature receptors in the dermis. But also there are capillary loops so there is a lot of blood that flows um, through the dermis. Now these capillary loops they can dilate meaning that they become wider or they can contract or constrict meaning that they become narrower and if they become narrower they can divert the blood flow away from the surface of the skin and in this way they can control the amount of heat lost by radiation but let's look at the points highlighted in your book about the functions of the human skin related to the fact that it forms the outer surface of the body. So this is the outer surface of the human body. The, the functions of the skin are first to form a tough outer layer that is resistant to mechanical damage. Two, it acts as a barrier to the entry of pathogens. Three, it is impermeable, so it prevents loss of water. Four, it acts as a sense organ for touch and temperature changes. Five, it controls the loss of heat through the body surface. The outer epidermis consists of dead cells that stop water loss and protect the body against invasion by microorganisms such as bacteria. The hypodermis contains a fatty tissue, like I said before, that insulates the body against heat loss, and it's a store of energy. The middle layer, the dermis, contains the sensory receptors. 
and also the sweat glands, the blood vessels, the hair follicles, and all the other parts that I mentioned before. Now imagine that the hypothalamus detects a rise in the central core body temperature. Immediately, it sends nerve impulses to the skin. These bring about changes to correct the rise in temperature. First of all, the sweat glands produce greater amounts of sweat. This liquid is secreted onto the surface of the skin. When a liquid evaporates, it turns into a gas. This change needs energy, called latent heat of vaporization, because it's going to change from a liquid to a vapor, to a gas. When sweat evaporates, the energy is supplied by the body's heat. So as it evaporates, the body is cooled down. It is not that the sweat is cool. It is secreted at body temperature. It only has a cooling action when it evaporates. So it is important that you understand that the cooling effect is due to the high latent heat of vaporization of water. In very humid atmospheres, for example, in a tropical rainforest, the sweat stays on the skin. It doesn't evaporate. It then has a very little cooling effect. And that's why people then recur to uh, fans. Now let's have a look at how the hairs play a role in uh, or react to changes in temperature. Hairs on the surface of the skin lie flat against the skin's surface. It happens because the tiny muscles called hair erector muscles are relaxed. They are attached to the base of each hair. In cold conditions, these contract and the hairs are pulled upright. The hairs trap a layer of air next to the skin, and since air is a poor conductor of heat, it acts as an insulator. In warm conditions, the thinner layer of trapped air means that more heat will be lost. This is not very effective in humans because the hairs over most of our body do not grow very large. It is very effective, though, in hairy mammals like cats or dogs. The same principle is used by birds, which fluff out their feathers in cold weather, so they trap air and the air is acting as an insulator. So there are two ways in which the skin can be insulated. One is by trapping air outside the epidermis, and the other one is by a thick fatty layer under the dermis, in the hypodermis. Okay, lastly, let's see how the tiny blood vessels called the capillary loops in the dermis can help in controlling um, the, the temperature of the body. Blood is flowing through these loops, these capillaries, and as they flow through the loops, they radiate heat to the outside, cooling the body down. If the body is too hot, the arterioles that are, are small arteries that lead to the capillary loops, they dilate. This increases the blood flow to the skin's surface. And you can see this in figure 8.10 on page 114 of your book. This process is called vasodilation because the tiny blood vessels 
dilate, they become wider, more blood flows near the surface of the skin and heat is lost by radiation. In cold conditions, the opposite happens. The arterioles leading to the surface capillary loops constrict. It means they become narrower and blood flow to the surface of the skin is reduced. So less heat will be lost by radiation. This process is called vasoconstriction because the blood vessels become narrower. They constrict. Vasoconstriction and vasodilation are brought about by tiny rings of muscles in the walls of the arterioles. They are called sphincter muscles, like the sphincters you read about earlier in this chapter at the outlet of the bladder, the ones we learn to control when we are babies and we stop using nappies. However, we cannot control the sphincter muscles of our um, blood loops that go to the epidermis of the skin.